and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Monica Marvelous. Hey, Monica, how's it going? Doing good, Mav. Had a nice little morning driving around some picket lines over Ooh. here at the studios because I was nosy. <laughs> nosy? I think it's a good kind of nosy. We were talking a little bit offline about, like, oh... Just for context, if you're listening to this show, you know, a year, two years, 10 years into the future, we are currently in the midst of the WGA writer strike in Hollywood and you live Hollywood adjacent, right? So, so you could, so you got to go see people standing there and fighting for living wages and royalties and things like that. Yes, because as we have, if you are fans of the podcast, you know, we have done quite a few labor related episodes in the past and we love a picket line and we love mm-hmm. fighting for basic living wages. So I thought it would be nice to go check it out. I so, would like better I, than basic basic living wages, but yes, at a bare minimum. Yes, that, at that a bare minimum. <laughs> also, looks like next week it has hit my social media that there will be a CW themed picket line outside of Warner <laughs> Brothers. I'm um, trying to understand. You, you, okay, okay. You sent me a text about this last night. And you're like, there's a CW ticket picket line. And I have questions. <laughs> uh, what is a CW theme picket line? I mean, that's what I really need to know is I assume it involves costumes, which is why I would uh-huh. be interested. I want to know how many people, how many WGA writers specifically, because the, when I hear we're going to theme a picket line, like that sounds like SAG energy if I've ever heard it. It doesn't sound like Writers Guild energy. So I want to know how many people are showing up in their slutty little gossip girl, schoolgirl outfits, stand outside of Warner Brothers with their picket sign, because that's what I want to see. And I think I'm going to be disappointed, but I'm going to drive by next week just to make sure. <laughs> I mean, um, I mean, I don't know if they're going to make it to like our show notes or anything, but I'm going to need you to send me pictures like I'm going to need that, <laughs> like no matter what, good or bad. I mean, again, I want them to be doing it. I love that they are taking taking joy, taking stock. I love that they're working and they're getting noticed and having, you know, with their pickup lines. But I'm just not sure. Like you said, you know, is it a gossip girl thing or are we going to see people in Smallville garb, Dawson's Creek? I would love a good Felicity outfit, but I don't know what you do it seems it's a very odd look to pick because one of the like sort of the formula for what the classic cw slash wb and it says it it was the wb slash cw which implies to me that they're going for the vibe of what we think of when we say cw show as opposed to going for like the old world wb vibe like i don't think we're going to see homeboys from out of space I don't see like any of the Steve Harvey show <laughs> in our, you know, our zeitgeist here. I think what we're going for is Dawson's Creek and I think this is some uh, Gilmore Girls, Luke's Diner, Gilmore Girls, lots of comedy, natural maybe. Yeah. And like, you know, you know this as a costumer yourself, like one of the reasons these shows got to be that was because, you know, they were able to save a lot of money on costuming by, you know, largely having wardrobe be, you know, the stuff teens wear as opposed to, you know, you didn't have to build a bat suit for anybody. Right. Like that's the joy of Smallville. The joy of Smallville is we could give him a super suit or, you know, work with me here flannel how about flannel right <laughs> you know like that's kind of what and by the way not a complaint you and i have both written articles about small 
about how much I adore that show. I genuinely love Hot Dad era of Superman and Lois. Yes, completely. Yes. Tell me more. Yes, okay. You're right. Maybe it is the fact that the writer just owns a bunch of flannel in their closets and they're like, well, we're unemployed and we can't spend a lot of money on this. So what could we cosplay with exactly zero dollars? And you're right. It's the clothes that they've been wearing since college. Right. Yeah. And the Gossip Girl outfit is like, you know, what's my sluttiest dress? I'll wear that. Okay, I'm done. And then, like, if I want to be Dawson's Creek instead of Smallville, still flannel. <laughs> you know, like, they, like it's, it's n- nothing changes. Felicity, flannel again. <laughs> like, there's just, I don't know where you do, where you go. So I'm looking forward to it. I want to know what's going on, but that's where I'm at. None of that is what we're talking about today. <laughs> it is, it is, it's going to come up. It's tangential. I, mean, I guess well, a little bit because tangential. We, you know, we, yeah, because. Especially since we mentioned Smallville, too. Yeah, because when I drive around town, especially in that area of town, there are a lot of posters for a movie that I really don't want to say out loud because I don't I want it also to receive exactly zero dollars worth of ticket sales. But we all know no, you're, that that's Warner the Flash. Brothers, the yes, Warner Brothers really <laughs> wants to put all of their eggs in the flash basket by mm-hmm. literally canceling everything else made me feel like the flash is the movie that no one asked for right it's the movie and well, that's not we true a bit on air about how- uh, everyone asked for it <laughs> to be fair lots of people asked, asked. For it years care. ago math and so yes yes that's what i want to talk about today that's- what i want to talk about is our fact that superhero movies seem to exist within ages very similar to we we yes. previously did an episode that was ages of Disney and ages of comic books, comic but books. Mm-hmm. similar to the way that comic books have eras and it feels like comic book movies have eras. And we've never really talked about this, that despite the fact that we all really like to talk about comic books a lot. So I thought it might be mm-hmm. a good breakdown for us to get into why the flash feels like it's an out of date movie and what the next era of comic book movies might actually be moving forward. So, okay. Well, this is useful for me because I am working on an article for a publication right now about a show that, speaking of superheroes wearing flannel, one of our joint favorites, I'm writing an article about The Gifted right now. So, yes, ages of cinematic superhero dumb. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, you invited somebody because I, I, you know, eagle eyed, eagle eyed, eagle eared viewers. Do eagle, what is the equivalent of eagle eyes for ears? Is it eagle? Because eagles don't, I don't know. Yeah, are they View, viewers and by viewers, ears? I mean listeners. Hearers? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rabbit eared viewers will notice that there's only two of us here today. So, we've, you know, we don't have none of our co hosts were able to make it this week. So, you brought a guest. Bring a guest. And I'm really excited because it is the first time that I have. Have been able to bring somebody who is also a PhD student at UCLA with me. We share a we share an office, and we have had the chance to speak a bit over the past year about how we both share a love of superheroes and superhero media. But also, when it comes to expertise, I picked somebody who's doing specifically a PhD dissertation on superheroes and superhero media, and really speaking. But I know that Mike could probably introduce himself better than I am introducing him right now. So welcome to the show, Mike. Oh, goody. Yeah. Oh, God, no. Just I'm so bad at like explaining what it is I do. (laughs) I'm literally in the class. It's all about like explain yourself in an elevator pitch. And I'm just like, oh, you throw Foucault and (laughs) some things. And I'm just God dang it. We'll we'll start with perhaps an easier question then. What would you like the listeners to know about yourself? And what's your name? Yeah. (laughs) To talk about superhero Uh, ages of 
superhero cinema with us. Oh, yeah, no, my name's Michael Mazakane. I am a second, this is going to be the end of my second year of the PhD program at UCLA for Cinema and Media Studies. I just like, you know, of that age that grew up on these movies, 90s kid who saw Marvel Studios become a thing. And basically, they that's how they took over pop culture in the movies. And like, it's this transition point for film where it's still popular, but it's not quite the monocultural thing it was. And, you know, you have superhero movies littered throughout the history of film. And, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot just because I'm a nerd in general, not because the projects. <laughs> Well, welcome to the show. (laughs) Yeah. So, all right. When we talked about both Disney and when we talked about comic books, we talked about ages of superhero-dom, ages of Disney-dom, ages of comics. And like we talked about on those shows how there was a very clear, and not necessarily in quality, but in what people referred to as a golden age, and then there was a silver age, and then there was a bronze age, and a modern age, and maybe there's a dark age, and there's, you know, the Renaissance and Disney. I don't know that they're as clearly broken up for the superhero film. They certainly don't match up with the golden age of Hollywood or the silver age of Hollywood the way. And yet I think there are very distinct waves. I would start, I mean, because again, like you said, we're nerds. So if we want to look at the very earliest superhero films, as it were, there are serials in the late 30s and early 40s about the shadow and uh, the original Captain Marvel and Superman and Batman and Mandrake the Magician and the Phantom. Love the Phantom. Lee Fox, the Phantom. They all exist starting in like 1939 going through the end of the 40s. So I maybe even the beginning of the 50s because I think Superman versus the Mole Man moment is like 1951. So those exist. There's that. And I think that's a is that a is that like the earliest? Is that how you would separate it out like actually like technically speaking you it, to me the oldest one i know of is the 1911 little nemo okay so um, you count the little nemo and, uh, little nemo based on yeah. little nemo's adventures and yes yeah okay. well it's te- which is technically it's a segment from the windsor mckay the famous cartoonist of the new york herald and his movie comics series mm-hmm. of shorts that they mm-hmm. did and so like in terms of like adaptations of comic material like it's that or it's Fantomas, which is like this French crime serial based on a pulp novel mm-hmm. series from 1913, 1913, okay. 1912, something like that. Like those are like the oldest first like indications. And then, yeah, you have the like or two era serial stuff, mm-hmm. which are distributed in theaters, but not feature films. Right. But all so like it, it kind of begins more like there are some re-edits of the serials that are turned into feature films. But yeah. Okay. Does it matter if it's a feature? Because, I mean, Monica, this was your topic. Like, when we talked about this, we were including TV shows. So I don't know that it matters that it's a feature. I think serials fit, don't they? Or what do you think? I think if we're going to talk ages of cinema uh, versus ages of superhero television, like, we we should separate it out because... Only all of the ages of superhero television are that shift to exploring domestic spaces because you need to be able to fill up significantly more seasons worth of time and plot and story. So you do formally hmm. like feel different versus I think that a serial is with the theatrical release is really the difference for me here of is this meant to be an action story or is this meant to be like the character driven introspective 
drama because I think that's also the place where you see the division of comic book eras or like comic book storytelling itself right so I think it's really actually about the narrative of these stories rather than the duration or length of stories I don't know maybe I see what you're saying I haven't thought it through because like my immediate gut counter example is to go yeah but what about Batman 66 right like where but I don't know I don't know and maybe that's what we're figuring out when you know today is are they two different continuums or are they one and uh, I, I certainly i think you the distinction you're making is true for many of the earlier things but i think that kind of gets muddied it gets extremely muddied in 2023 where you have characters crossing over from MCU TV shows to MCU movies and back and forth. Right. Like, so I think that there's budgetary constraints, but I, that like sort of lend you still being where you are. But I also think that it's a little weirder trying to separate out the world that WandaVision exists in from the rest of the MCU. So one of the ways that I've also tried to think about how we could delineate is perhaps using something like a theory, because I, I think about when we look at ages of comic books, there is sort of like when you look at the prevailing like artistic techniques that are being used or the primary editorial team as having large influence on the ways that things shift um, in our eras of comic books. If we could also think about cinema history and the fact that if we are going to compare something like 90s Batman to the 90s Flash TV series, they're both being filmed on the exact same Warner Brothers lot, clearly being like, hey, like the Timber- next door. With the like same the Tim, people building the costumes. The Burton, <laughs> it's very obvious. Like, lighting scheme is really working. Let's just copy and paste it to network television, right? I believe yes, they might absolutely. have physically and, moved and the so race. There I, is, I I think, the <laughs> maybe it's not so simple to, to differentiate between cinema and film because it does seem to be that there's something about like prevailing aesthetic styles might actually be a greater way to differentiate these eras. And I don't know. It's a good, it's a good question. It, Mike, you've thought about this. How do you, re- I mean, I see why you distinguish between the early 1911 sort of pre-serials with, with Little Nemo. But where do you see a distinguishing mark between what the serials were to, I guess, I don't know, the serials sort of... <sighs> I feel like I, I feel like the Adventures of Superman television show, and I don't know if we should include radio or not, but I feel like the George Reeves television show is a natural extension of the serial era of film of superhero film in a way that I think that I think the Adam West Batman isn't. And that's 66. OK, so like my dissertation project is like fundamentally about shifting distribution models as like okay. the means by which these superhero bodies are distributed and how those shifts um, change the discourses of gender around them and that they generate. And so like, to me, I tend to think of these things as like, well, what are the larger industrial political economy aspects of this first? And like you mentioned earlier, like, well, it gets fuzzy in the MCU era because like now they're doing TV and film crossover stuff. Mm -hmm. And like part of that is like a larger sort of melding of like blurriness of the medium in general. But like you have that sort of blurriness in the theatrical market of the early 1910s to the 30s of like 
you go to a movie and you get a short, a serial, and an A and a B picture, yep, and and stuff like that. So like, <clears throat> like they all like the serial and the film exist as part of the same distribution platform and literally the same physical media. It's just like, oh, one is twenty minutes and a double reel, I think technically, and one is a feature length film. But like to like, but they're all on film. It's like to me, they're kind of informing one another, and like then yeah, like. George Reeves Superman is totally indebted to television to radio the radio era Superman stuff because like television is just from a like aesthetic and form standpoint indebted to radio and so like you do have yeah. this very this blurring of medium distinction even though like the history of like media studies has been like no these platforms are all distinct and there's hard boundaries when it's not really the case but like I feel like you could begin and recognize, well, they started out as serials, but then like those serials do get recut and turned into feature films and then also re-aired on television. And so like mm-hmm. there's this just constant circulation that happens. I don't know if that really answers the question, but yeah, that's my thoughts. <sighs> okay. No, I think it does. It talks about, I mean, I see where you're going with it. And so I wonder, no, actually, I was going to say, I wonder if that breaks when we get to, say, the Batman 66 era, because that is uniquely intended as a television audience and nothing else, except that there's a film, that, that there is a feature film that is released that is a tie-in to that in, in between seasons two and three. Ooh, so I don't know. But that's also, I just want to jump in. That's also sort of the form of that era as well, right? Like the idea of there's not necessarily that same experience of like, you have to go to the cinema to see like, I'm thinking of Star Trek specifically, right? Where there's those like three-parter episodes that like could have just as easily have been released via cinema. And instead they were released as almost made for TV movies, but not quite made for TV movies because they've been truncated into just being three-parter episodes. But, but there is something about when we think of form and distribution. I absolutely agree. It's very different when we're talking about that era versus the way that we distribute films and watch films versus television now. Oh, and I mean, and then also just like anime, which is like a completely different thing, but it's informed by this. Like they will do two part movies like the Sailor Moon last stuff was like a two part film. Zack Snyder is doing a two part Rebel Moon film. Like, but they're all distributed on streaming now. But like, if it's in chunks, does that make it television really long television, or is it like still count as film because it's like ninety minutes? But yeah, I see what you're saying, and I don't know. I don't know that my answer is the same in the modern television. I think we're not even. I don't think we're even making a real superhero argument. I don't think superhero stories are special in this respect. I think that post the new golden age of television, like starting with hmm, Sopranos, Battlestar Galactica, the modern age of cinematic-esque television that we get, prestige television, your Mad Men, your Breaking Bads, your, you know, whatever we're watching now, every Game of Thrones and whatever the Amazon Lord of the Rings series, all the stuff that's on now, Marvelous Ms. Maisel. Like those are television shows that don't work the classic way that old TV work. And part of this is the streaming era, part of the, you know, like this, it's what we were talking about with the strike stuff at the, you know, at the beginning of the episode, right? Like a lot of the issues are over the fact that television doesn't work the way that it used to do. So therefore, um, the royalty payment stream 
being based on the syndication model that doesn't exist anymore is dumb and they want that fixed. And I could say that is a new thing that didn't exist before, before 2019, but that's a lie, right? This is constantly happening every time we invent videotape or cable television or, you know, more than two or three networks. Like there are this has always been an issue. It's the issue of how do we conceive of the serials, which are largely doing radio stories, radio plays, except for you can see them like Superman versus the Mulman. It could have been on radio. <laughs> you know, you can see him, but uh, but he's barely doing anything. You know, you see him jump into frame and shout some lines. Right. Like, I feel like the transition there is also from the same shift in physical media type that you're talking about, just as much as changing from a world where MCU is separate, but only loosely separate from an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or a Daredevil TV show to changing to a world where Wanda walks right off of WandaVision and into Doctor Strange. I think that those kinds of shifts, while they might feel seismic because we like to think that we're in this brand new territory, I think that the radio shift that you're talking about and the serial shift and the, I think that, I think it's all a continuum. So I think that we're constantly doing that reinvention. At the same time, when we talk about our ages of comics, like those are all kind of a continuum too, because it's constant publication. Like, and so it sure. does become like, mm -hmm. we're just arbitrarily assigning ages. Like that's the point of this particular show because no one's ever assigned them before versus something like, oh, well, let's talk through the gold and silver age because those already yeah, have okay. designations that somebody else came up with. But somebody else just frankly invented them. Mm -hmm. And so we are frankly inventing them also right now. And so there is the, this like we get to choose okay. where to put those divisions. A lot of power, guys. But I, that. Maybe that's why I don't know where to put the divisions. <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, so mm -hmm. I. Do you think that there is anything notable either from a, from an on screen or from a paratext, you know, I should say this more pseudo academic, either on screen or just environmental and sociological like difference between what happens? Because to me, that first split is the Batman 66. So Batman 66 happens with Adam West. And then and I said, I think I said earlier between seasons two and three, but I think it's actually between seasons one and two. There's three seasons of the show and there's a movie which I think actually might come out between seasons one and two, not two and three. And then it gets canceled after the third season. But that's a television show that's airing twice a week and has a, I think, substantively different feel. I think it's doing something different than what Adventures of Superman was trying to it's do. doing something different, I guess, for listeners who might not be super familiar with Batman 66, because it's goofy? Or why? No, not at all. I mean, yes, it is goofy. But I think that there are goofy parts. I don't think that being a comedy, which is what Batman 66 is doing, is what's special. I think what's special about it is that it is trying to do a story. Like, I think that all the serials and even the George Reeves show were extending the Superman legend, but were largely continuing it and just trying to do, hey, we did a comic book version. We did a comic book Superman. Can we put that on the radio? Oh, yeah, that worked okay. Can we make a cartoon? Yeah, that worked okay. Can we make a serial? Yeah, that worked okay. Can we do television? Yeah, that worked okay. And I feel like Batman 66 is trying to re to do a reinvention in a way those other things weren't. And that might be just my feeling. 
but it's not just the comedy. It's that it's trying to take advantage of the medium of television in a way that I don't think, I don't think Adventures of Superman tried to do. And maybe other people would disagree to me, but I feel like it wants to, you know, the reason the colors are vibrant, that's part of the language of that show. Not just that it's in color, but that they're so vibrant and garish that like that, that Adam West and Burt Ward and Cesar Romero and like the cast is acting at 11, like on every single you know, single frame of those shows. Yes, I get why people think they're campy and, and, and silly because they are campy and silly. But what makes them work is that Adam West delivers those lines like he's doing Shakespeare in the park. It, he is all in on this concept. And I think it makes that show work. I think that there is a charm to it that differentiates it both in production value and in storytelling craft and in acting craft and in production craft. It differentiates it from everything that came before. And I think informs everything that comes after it for a good while. So after Batman 66, you have a Wonder Woman show, which is not a comedy, but I think is informed by Batman 66 a lot more than it is informed by the early serials. I think you have a Shazam show. I think you have some Spider-Man made for TV movies. And I think that you have, even though I think that there are jumps in quality and in special effects, I think you have the early, you know, 1970 Superman movies that kind of directly follow out of Batman 66 in a way that puts them in an era together, in an age together. Just to kind of like add on to that. So like for like Batman 66, to me, like, okay, just like I'm just throwing it out there. Like to me, like the modern age of these movies begins with Batman 89. But like the okay. thing that the, the like the way that to me, 66. I would agree, like by the way. Pre- is this precursor is that like it is part of like the original Batman fever, Batmania. Mm-hmm. Well, Batmania is 89, but like Batman fever occurs and you have all this merchandise that is licensed and created for the show and character in a way that while well, yeah, like, all of a sudden. Yeah, like and serials had like promotional tie-in stuff that occurred, but it wasn't like the merchandising wasn't such a factor in the way that like it would become once you get to Batman 89 and like post Star Wars world that happens. But yeah, no, like it's the merchandising and like those shows are all like narratives are largely self-contained two-parters, but like it's that plus you have this merch element that makes the show valuable in a way that isn't just the ratings and licensing fee. Cultural phenomenon wise, when we talk about Batman 66 compared to some of the other superhero media. Like if anyone has ever read the like the Adam West like autobiography, the amount that that man loves to talk about how many people want to fuck Batman, which is I feel like is not like that was kind Absolutely. of a new thing. Like and as as much as we do, you know, really like the Christopher Reeve Superman, I still think that there is something culturally happening that turns like the idea of Batman into celebrity and the idea of Batman into sex symbol that hadn't happened within prior media mm-hmm. depictions before of this idea of the Superman like I would speculate super person, super actor as like hyper celebrity. And so I think that there's something also really important in terms of when we're thinking about desire of like merchandising, but also desire of like the cultural phenomenon of like caring about these people as people or potentially outside of just being comic book characters. And that there's this like 
elevation of fandom it's sort of happening in this era that also feels very similar if we're going to draw yes. more comparisons to like the star trek fervor and like the real uptick of when we think about like sci-fi and comic book and fan convention which i would argue is probably a really important part of our eras right is when you can have like in-person fan participation which is very different than if we talk about like a letter to the editor page or a marvel no prize which we've always been encouraging participation but the idea of being able to have this like face-to-face interaction with other fans is a really important way that we are changing the media itself which is also really encouraging not like this kind of transmedia property of we can exist across all of these different mediums but I think it's also the thing that probably makes TV the most successful in this moment. I think you keyed into one thing. You were talking about the fan participation, but you also said super celebrity. And that's one of the things that I wanted to point out. Like another just difference that I see between between Batman 66 and Adventures of Superman. So Batman 66 very specifically creates a vision of Batman in people's minds that Batman is Adam West. And this matters because because the I would compare that to the Adventures of Superman series starring George Reeves, which starts 15 years earlier. It's 1951, I think, and 1952, somewhere in there. But the 50s version of Superman, George Reeves is doing everything he can to embody the comic book character of Superman when they're merchandising it. And they did merchandise it. But when they sell a lunchbox to a kid in the 1950s, it's got the comic book Superman on it. And when George Reeves appears in garb outside the show, like when he's on a another TV show or doing a public appearance as Superman, he is being Superman. When he guest stars on I Love Lucy, he guest stars as the character of Superman, not as George Reeves, so much so that it apparently caused problems in his life. Right. There's a whole history as to, you know, George Reeves being typecast, George Reeves going crazy, like how much of, you know, being Superman invaded his life. And then I don't want to go that deep down that rabbit hole, but, you know, maybe it even led to his death. Who knows? Take this to Adam West. Adam West is larger than Batman, the comic book character, so much so that retroactively the comic book starts adopting parts of the Adam West performance. The lunchboxes don't have just a generic Batman on it. They have Adam West as Batman. The characters on the cartoon on Super Friends are not just Batman and Robin. They are Adam West and Burt Ward. For decades, for literal decades following this, people start seeing the Joker as Cesar Romero and the Riddler as, as Frank Gorshin, like Burgess Meredith becomes the Penguin, Julie Newmar becomes Catwoman. And those characters retroactively adopt the celebrity instead of, you know, the real life celebrity aspects instead of the other way around. So they get folded in. I mean, even Batgirl in the comics, Batgirl in the comics at that point is Yvonne Craig. The character didn't even exist. It was a different Batgirl. The character was invented for the TV show and folded back in. And I think that becomes a lasting part of what superhero dim is now. So, you know, we've gone out of our way to even now in 2023, when they draw Tony Stark in the comics, they're just drawing Robert Downey Jr. now. <laughs> and, when they, and, you know, we've made sure 
that he looks more like Robert Downey Jr. We've made sure that Linda Carter became Wonder Woman in the 70s. Like this kind of and Batman gets reinvented so such that like we distinguish between who's your favorite Batman. We don't say 1966 Batman. We say Adam West is my favorite Batman. Ben Affleck's my favorite Batman. Michael Keaton is my favorite Batman. Like you know, like we determine them by actors. So I think that the that celebrity aspect being folded into the cinematic Batman. I mean, even right now, you talked about not nobody wanting the Flash movie, even though some people do. But if you're thinking about the Flash, you start asking yourself, am I talking about Ezra Miller or am I talking about Grant Gustin? Like, because we're associating that there are two Flashes that we differentiate by the actor portraying them. Oh, and I should have also clarified. And Batman is Kevin Conroy. <laughs> just, he just always will be. So. Oh, no, there's Jason O'Mara gets no respect for his time as Batman. <laughs> Oh, God, no. Like when we were talking about like, oh, what about medium stuff? Like what about the direct to video movies? Where do those count? Because they are feature length films, but they were distributed on video and the disc. But like, yeah, that's another like wrinkle in the how do we make a semi clean Then we would have to completely split animated versus live action if we're going to do this based on actor we feel like bodies all of these characters the best right i don't think they were always yeah i don't know they were always there right like they were i think animated is in the superhero realm in superhero fantasy as a genre i think that is one of the few places where historically the american western fandom has accepted animated versions as equal to and no less juvenile than any of the adult live action versions so as opposed to other stuff where we're like well the cartoons for kids if it was serious it would be with real people you know and of course if you're an animation fan you push back against that but i think with superhero stuff we've more or less always been on board as a superhero fan with the fact that there is a cartoon version and there is a live action version and they can both be cool or at least equally cool because you know if you are going to disparage superheroes you're going to disparage the live action just as much as you disparage any of the cartoons i don't think it's going to be the stigma of childlike the way it is in other genres at least that's how it feels to me i I, no, like i'm thinking about it like you're right but also that's just like I, if I go on this, I just derail us into a larger discussion about like the nature of like n- like United States based fandom and yeah, like yeah, that's true. All of that just like, but yeah, yeah. I tried to caveat it, but yeah, I, I think that is. I mean, the disparagement of animation is very much a United States thing that we're getting over slowly, but it's slow. You know, (laughs) like it is a problem that is, you know, very specific to our culture that I don't think scales as well for the rest of the world. Like if you're in Japan, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Hi to any Japanese listeners. (laughs) So, okay, beyond Batman 66, you mentioned, Mike, you said, do you think there's a very distinguishing mark that happens at the Batman 89? I think a lot of people would put it at the Superman film at the Chris Reeve Superman. I don't know. So looking at both of them, is either of them an important watermark? You know, in the, the 1978, you know, you will believe a man can fly, which is the tagline to Richard Donard's Superman 78, the Christopher Reeve film or the first of the Christopher Reeve films, which I think is another thing that people often point to as an important film in the superhero genre. But 
you said you were going to put 89. So I don't know. Is 78 Superman important or is it just more of the tradition that starts with like, I, why, I don't think there's any reason that you can't have three eras, right? That you can't go 66, 78, 89. Oh, sure. I just I don't know if it's important enough to make the distinguishing because you've got the so Batman 66, I said marks an era starting, but I don't want to stop right after that because right like you've got the Wonder Woman TV show and then you've got the Superman movies. And I think that they all share DNA, but I can see people arguing that I'm wrong. So my reason that I put Batman 89 ahead of the Reeves era stuff is because like fundamentally like the production of like the Reeves of the it's the Richard Donner stuff and then Donner gets kicked off Superman 2 for, for like Lester that yeah. era yeah for mm-hmm. was replaced with Lester is fundamentally like the original production of those movies wasn't anything really new it was supposed to be a roadshow feature that was essentially a large double bill in the vein of 60s era massive musical films and like it was just like it was doing this style of production but in a new genre and like there there is like VFX elements and stuff that are important yeah but that's for me I agree but like for me 89 is where you have the modern blockbuster is mm-hmm. that occurs and that is what these movies are most associated with for me at least is like they are these blockbuster giant tentpole events where it is the synergy of all the tendrils of the recently constituted Warner Brothers working together to create mm-hmm. merchandise and everything where like yeah it's gonna it like it made a ton of money but it was the first time I was like we're going to go high con like they they take the Jaws sort of big movie event film style making but then pair it with the Star Wars merchandising machine, but it's all under one roof. And that's what everyone wants to go after afterwards is like, oh, we need to do these properties that we can then license out to other people to make merchandise for. Look, I I did a seminar paper for a class and basically it was all based on me reading basically two years of every Hollywood Mm -hmm. trade magazine Mm -hmm. from basically 1989 to 1992 until basically Batman Returns came out. Mm-hmm. And just tracking the discourse of like licensing and merchandising and everyone wanting to be the next Batman and how Batman became Batmania and Batman became synonymous with money. And like, like, that's why, like, to me, like, it's because like the filmmaking itself isn't that different, honestly, but it's the stuff around it and what it meant that is different. So that's like my, enough of a distinction. Yeah, no, I think it is. Cause in, cause in my world, I would consider, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take the halfway point. Right. I would say that the stuff that, that Superman's doing in 78 and that the Linda Carter Wonder Woman is doing in 76 are basically continuing the legacy of Batman 66 being more serious TM, but not much more, but you know, somewhat more serious TM. They're less about camp. But basically, I'd say the difference isn't anything special to the superhero-ness of it. I think that they added Star Wars effects, basically, and not as, I mean, they didn't have quite the know-how that that Lucas had with his ILM people, but basically Superman, the cinematic Superman, the 78 Superman, is in a world where Star Wars exists, what does a superhero movie look like now? But I don't think it's fundamentally any different than anything that was happening in a world prior to Star Wars with the Wonder Woman TV show. I think that you are right with Batman 89 in that Batman 89 has a fundamental shift towards okay 
we are now in the blockbuster era and it's early in the blockbuster era because film will transform in the late 80s early 90s we go to the you know to the point where we're starting to market films on release dates and you know, we start carrying up spoilers and everything. like all that i think starts happening around the release of batman in a way that well, i actually want to have to deal with uh, and because we're talking the star wars of it all and okay. we've danced around it a little bit specifically this licensing and when it comes to toys and mm-hmm. if maybe and call me crazy but maybe our eras of superhero mm-hmm. cinema should actually be based off of ideas of licensing and merchandising and i'm bringing this up because we've talked a lot about mm-hmm. dc film and dc film history because they kind of figured out the secret sauce a little bit earlier and more effectively than marvel did right but marvel goes through this really big shift when they come out with a first Spider-Man movie. And when we're talking licensing and we're talking toys, it's really, yes, the first I am talking Sam Raimi's Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. That for me Tobey Maguire. Okay. Not the 70s made for TV ones. I am talking Sam Raimi's Tobey Maguire Spider-Man that for me, I think, is the next era that comes after sort of Batman 89. And it's specifically because we need to talk about the marketing and we need to talk about the toys of it all. Because at that same time in the 80s when we have our Mm -hmm. back Batman secret sauce and DC is going great. Marvel is basically bankrupt, right? And the thing that saves them from bankruptcy is that a action figure toy company mm-hmm. who has owned the licenses for Marvel toys during the 90s and in toy biz is the one that purchases Marvel, saves them from mm-hmm. bankruptcy. And then un- because they understand the licensing business, their CEO, RV- Avi Arad, becomes the CEO of Marvel. And then he understands that maybe he should license out the film rights for money for then Marvel to be able to to make their cash back. And so that's how we end up with the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi Spider-Mans over at Sony. And But there is just this idea of like the thing that maybe we should be focusing mm-hmm. on is licensing agreements as being the originating point of these eras. Because the thing that arguably made Star Wars such a big thing was the Lucas licensing division. It was all of the little toys, which was then the thing that really pushed Batman Mm -hmm. towards the front forefront. And when we talk about this idea of having release calendars, understanding that like you should put out Happy Meal toys at the same time that something is in theaters, because then kids will want to go see Batman because they got it in their Happy Meal. Like. Synergy. Yeah, it is is the synergy of the marketing, but it is specifically synergy of marketing that is tied to tangible like products that I think is really key that while it exists with a lot of other, especially kids products and and kids media, it's something where it's a bit transcendent to be marketed towards both children and adults with superhero movies. Can I offer two like interesting case studies of this like theory of like the licensing stuff? Okay. So in the aftermath of Batman 89, everyone wants that one. And like, really it's TMNT. It's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Turtles comes in as like, which like, I've never been a Turtles fan. I love like the original like comics where they're a parody of Frank Miller Daredevil. I like, but like the other stuff, I I never really got it. But like the TMNT licensing for the movie became a big deal. And also like, they also like developed like into a larger transmedia quicker. And then that gave them the movie. But like, that was a licensing success story. The 
failure of that is the Dick Tracy movie that Warren Beatty made. Like, have you guys uh, ever thought about that movie that much? Of course, there was a he just made a new one a couple months ago that nobody is aware. Oh God, see the Dick. Oh, okay, so no, tr- Warren Dick Tracy Beatty, calls in. Yeah, Warren Beatty owns the rights to Dick Tracy in perpetuity. So long, he's got like the same kind of deal that Marvel made for stuff like Fantastic Four, where. You know, he has to keep making stuff or the rights revert. So he keeps making Dick Tracy movies that no one sees um, because he doesn't want the rights to revert. Now, remember, Warren Beatty is currently an 86 year old man. He is retired. He's not acting. He doesn't need Dick Tracy anymore. He could just let it go because, again, Warren Beatty played Dick Tracy in the year 1990 for a movie that only I like. I think it's great. I think it's brilliant. No notes. It's bad. Maybe we should do an episode of Is This a Bad Movie on it one day. Absolutely. Um, should. But yeah. Yeah. But like, oh, you would love, have no. you seen it, Monica? Because like the costuming, oh, the costuming alone will change your life. It is so amazing. But Warren Beatty owns the rights to it, but they will revert if he doesn't do something with it every, I guess, I don't know, 15 years or something, 15, 20. So he filmed it in 1990 and then. And he made a TV special in 2010 called Dick Tracy Special. It's a movie that like he made that no one saw. It was just literally made for television that only exists so that Warren Beatty can, you know, then in his 70s can retain the film rights to this property that no one else wants. Well, they were going to expire again. So Warren Beatty did it again in 2023. Yes, in the year 2023, the year that we live in right now as we record and probably as you're listening to this, Warren Beatty made a Dick Tracy, what I am very loosely going to call movie. Uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> where wherein the character of Dick Tracy and actor Warren Beatty get into an argument over a Zoom call with Leonard Malton. There's no point to this other than the fact that he has to film something every several years in order to retain the rights. It's weird. And I just implore you to like, I don't know. I, like, I kind of want people to watch it, but also I don't know if the original movie is popular enough that anybody will even get it. And then, like, I also don't know if the character of Dick Tracy is popular anymore because, like, he's doing this to retain the film rights to something that no one wants. Like, no one's going to take his film rights away at this point. Nobody's looking for Dick Tracy anymore. So it's fascinating. Yeah. On the Dick Tracy front, real quick, one, like, the mm-hmm. early 1930s, the Dick Tracy versus Crime Inks. Also, like, mm-hmm. I forgot to mention, like, early example of, like, superhero film stuff. Yeah. All, but, like... Okay, the 90s film that is just like someone saw the production design Burton Batman and was like, huh? well, okay, we're going to do this. Uh, <laughs> we're going to add primary colors to everything. And it's just the best. Also, I the grotesque makeup is great. Yeah. And just like, <laughs> no, Monica, like Madonna's costuming in it is like really good, bad. Like Madonna is in this movie. I was like, you just oh, literally yeah. skipped Madonna's over the part the where Madonna is in this movie. And I was like, I need no other convincing whatsoever. Uh, no, no, we Madonna's should absolutely in this do movie. an episode about this movie. Al, Pac- Al Pacino and Dustin Hoffman are both in this movie. Oh yeah, Dustin Hoffman's under all that noise makeup no too. It's- yeah, he plays Mumbles. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is a movie that stars Pacino and and Hoffman, and 
like no one ever mentions the fact that they're both in this film because I don't know that anybody saw it to remember that they are both in this movie. Dick Van Dyke's in this movie. Kathy Bates is in this movie. It is Paul Servino, William Forsythe. It's a thing. Oh, wow. I forgot. I'm looking at the cast list. Mandy Patinkin is in this film. It's crazy. It is an amazing (laughs) just piece of cinema (laughs) that that needs to be seen to believe. Yeah. Also, just a thought, just because I think it needs to be recognized, which it goes against our licensing ethos in a way. But the 90s is kind of like the high point in terms of black representation in superhero movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Because you have Spawn in 90, 94, 95. You have Spawn, which mm-hmm. is a good, bad movie. I watched it for the first time 97. recently. You have, yeah, you have Spawn. You have Blade. Blade. You have mm-hmm. the Shaquille O'Neal-led Steel, which Steel. is unofficially mm-hmm. DC Superman, but it's not. It's that, I've never gotten the rights to that thing figured out, really. And there are two parodies of, like, you have Meteor Man and there's Blank another Man. one. Blank Man. Yeah, Blank Man. I'm. I'm um, not. <laughs> do you consider Meteor Man and Blank Man to be Space Jam parodies? in there? I'm not sure that they are. Uh, Space Jam's a little. I mean, I mean, Space Jam is there, but Space Jam is a. It's comic booky. I think that Meteor Man and well, Blank Man is a parody in, in its own way, but I think Blank Man's actually a legit good movie. I would not. I would say it's not even a. It's a secretly a bad movie. I think Blank Man's actually doing really good work and it's just that it's not their fault that they only had a 47 dollar budget that's just what it was right like i think meteor man wants to be a movie in the vein of like a chris reeve superman movie it's 1993 and it's just like hey we're gonna get all of black hollywood to star in this robert townsend joint and this is what we've got we came up with meteor man that's the best we could do i don't think it's i i think see i don't want to say it's good because it's not I mean, it's got like a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's, I just think it's, I think it's a swing that isn't as bad as that 29% suggested is. I think that it would have been better if any, if black film critics existed in 1993, <laughs> you know, cause, cause it's, so I'm just looking at a 29% based on 17 critic reviews because a bunch of white people went out and saw this movie and said, this is awful. And it's not awful. It's just that this isn't a movie for you. <laughs> it's, it's not good. But it's not awful. Blank Man, on the other hand, is trying to do. Oh, wow. We should people should see Blank Man. Blank Man is trying to do a superhero deconstruction. And it does really interesting work trying to deal with both the ideas of what is it to be a black superhero and what is it to be a disabled superhero? And this is from 1994. Blank Man comes up. It really sounds like these eras are accelerating for us when we hit the 90s. And mm-hmm. I guess the question has to be, are, you don't necessarily feel like when we do our ages of superhero comics that we have this point where like now it's we get a bunch of different ages all at once. But do we feel like it's OK in terms of they, they don't seem roughly have the same duration to them involved? It depends on if you want to count the 2008 and the release of Iron Man and the Dark Knight as a new epoch, or if you just, like, in my mind, so, like, if Batman 89 is the modern era, then the release of X-Men 1 in 2000, well, X-Men, I forget, is, does X-Men or Spider-Man X-Men come out first? first? It's X-Men, X-Men comes up first. Yeah, like, X-Men is the start of 
whatever you call the contemporary moment. It's not postmodern, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. so where I'm fighting the urge to go down the rabbit hole. It counts as modernism, you guys. But mm-hmm. to me, like it, once you get the X Men film franchise, the like contemporary understanding of how the genre moves is set because the X Men franchise then just begins to react to everything else over the next mm-hmm. seventeen years. Yeah. <laughs> So one of the things that I, I talked about this briefly on on the Ages of Superheroes show, where I think things get kind of fuzzy, because for me, with superheroes, the genres were decided based on cultural changes in the comic book industry for the first 70 some odd years of superheroes existed. I argued that, you know, we had a golden age, a silver age, a bronze age. A modern age, maybe a dark age, maybe a, you know, a postmodern age, you know, whatever you want to call it. It's all based on, oh, and now there's seduction of the innocent and there's these here that, you know, there's congressional hearings that change and create the create the comics code authority. Like we had those things and we had and now World War Two happens and now Vietnam happens. And those are things that are affecting comic books until you hit this multimedia age where I argue that now superheroes, while they might have originated in comic books and while the real fans, TM might really care about comic books. I would argue that in reality, the real fans for superheroes are people who are watching the films. It's a much bigger fandom. It is a much more important and powerful fandom. It is what these things are about, especially from the big two, from Marvel and DC. You know, what matters is, can I make a billion dollar Avengers picture? That's what matters, right? Can I make a billion dollar Batman? What do you mean Shazam only made $60 million? What a horrible failure, right? Like, like, like that's the, that is where we're at in this world right now, right? So I think that I argue that there was a shift to where the merchandising of the film rights of the box office became what's important. And I wonder if if you look at it from purely film ages, I think that there is a distinction that happens with 89, with Batman 89, and maybe even with Superman, but I don't think they knew this with the Superman films, because I don't think when like they they were trying to do two of them. They knew with Donner knew that he had too much movie for one film, so he was trying to do two. I don't think he knew it was going to get four, five, if you count the Supergirl film, which I think is underrated. It's bad. It's criminally underrated. I think that those were accidental franchises. And then I think when you hit Batman 89, you're trying to build a franchise. How many movies can we get out of this Batman franchise? How many movies can we get out of this X-Men franchise? How many movies can we get out of this Spider-Man franchise? And then Iron Man hits and it's no longer just about a franchise. It's about the world of cinematic universes. So I think that we've got a distinction now where we are going, where the reason I launch a superhero project in 2023 is because I'm trying to figure out how can I build a mega franchise that I can milk for every cent that it's worth across a multimedia empire. You know, what can I get out of the box office? What can I get out of streaming? Can I have tie-in comics? Can I get enough kids interested in my new product that I can launch a YA series like, you know, like that's what it's about now in a way that I don't think I don't think that's what they were going for with Batman 89, the same way they are doing that with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 or this new Flash movie. Like, I think those are even though the Flash movie, I, we know that is ending the DCEU, but it but 
a lot of the fervor around the Flash movie is how is this going to end the DCEU and start the new DCU? You know, like that's the question. It is very much a meta question that regards to the cinematic world around it. And I don't think that's just for film nerds like us. I think that that is a question that the fandom is really invested in. I think that's where the interest in this film comes. And like, it's funny that we have this question when like Days of Future Past already did this. Uh-huh. And well, no one respects the X-Men franchise, really. But like, I'm just like, yeah. And then Me, I'm always Days of Future. God, I'm not good. A perfect movie because it acknowledges garbage that oh. came before and <laughs> says, we're sorry. Let's try again. Problem is that then it came after it, it was I, I also a garbage movie. movie. And, yeah. and so, so bad. it arguably yeah. so much worse yeah. than Do the things that came before. The Wolverine. However, if we can just let <laughs> Days of Future Past exist on its own, it is the perfect superhero Well, it doesn't film. work if it exists and on it its own. it doesn't work on its own because you had to have no, watched it, a bunch of garbage to understand it, it, why we yes. need a movie that's just saying we're Story over and over yeah. again. That's also what makes yeah, it a part. It doesn't work on its own. It purely works to be elite. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It is. But I appreciate. Well, I think that I think it fits into this new world, right? Like the point of Days of Future Past is. And by the way, I actually also really enjoy Days of Future Past. But the point of Days of Future Past is not to be a narrative first and foremost. The point of Days of Future Past is how do we disambiguate and clean up this timeline so that we can keep our multimedia franchise going? That's its purpose, right? Like everything else is second. Like, hey, maybe people will do good acting. Hey, maybe there'll be some cool set pieces. Hey, maybe we can sell some toys. Those are all things that matter. But I think that the Days of Future Past movie is Kevin Feige's making a shit ton of money over at Disney. And we here at Fox would like to make some shit ton of money, too. So we're going to need there to be a cinematic universe. We've got some Logan projects coming. We got some more X-Men projects coming. We're going to do something with Deadpool. I hear, you know, we've got some ideas and, you know, and maybe one day we can roll the Fantastic Four back into this. But in order for this to work, we need to reset things and we need to get things on track. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to put a stake in the ground and build a cinematic universe off of one film that fixes everything. And that's a hell of a swing. And the fact that it was enjoyable is impressive. Like I really do like the direction next month. But like also uh-huh. like Days of Future Past was sold as the response to the Avengers in that it is a crossover beat. And yes. like it was the cro- yeah. like that was the thing that they sold and they didn't sell it as like, oh, we're gonna use this to erase X-Men 3 and like still somehow make the prequel trilogy stuff work. It doesn't, but like it, they sold it as like, oh, crossovers are why the Avengers made it. We're right. gonna have a crossover now because we can we've lucked into that by sheer chance. And so Patrick yeah. Stewart and James McAvoy are on the same poster. How's it happened? You want to know, don't you? You better come see this movie. That's yeah, absolutely. Just, and just the sheer luck of McKellen and Stewart doing Waiting for Godot on Broadway and having mm-hmm. like, oh, we have two week free time. Let's go sit on a set and just be <laughs> buddies together. And it'll like, well, they'll make the movie around it. It's amazing really, that it works out so well. The only reason those work yeah. is because they're real life besties, right? Like the greatest thing that X-Men ever gave us is Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen as real life besties. 
Yeah, it shows it, it does make those films work. But I think, again, the fact that you know that, well, maybe not you because you're a film nerd. The fact that regular people know this, right? Regular people know that Ian McClellan and Patrick Stewart are real life best friends. And that informs the performance and therefore informs why people like are invested in this universe. I read an article recently about, you know, top five reasons why Ian McClellan needs to be Magneto in the MCU. Like, that's weird, right? Because people were, it was around the time where it was leaked that, that Patrick Stewart was going to show up in, in the Doctor Strange movie. And then people were like, we've got to get Ian McClellan back. And, you know, and sort of, guys, they're like 90. You know, they're not going to make too many. I mean, I hope they both live forever, but they're not going to. So they're not going to be your Professor X and your Magneto moving forward. But people want it. And it's not just because of their performance in X-Men 1, 2, and 3. It's because of the meta narrative that pervades what these superhero films are. I mean, another example is doing the same thing with Spider-Man in No Way Home. The value of that movie and i enjoy it by the way i think it's a really good movie but the value of that movie is a the meta connectedness to the previous spider-man movies but also in torturing andrew garfield for 16 straight months of making him deny being in the film <laughs> like like perfect chef's kiss everybody <laughs> no i please i think i still think andrew garfield deserved an oscar for his performance outside of the films of just the you know a man driven to the brink of sanity having to do press for you know other films where he's like i swear i'm not in the movie can we talk about my little musical now please and he, please i would really like to talk about my musical no are you spider-man <laughs> like that's that's like the fact that he had to do that in the press became part of the film i don't want to say that we've resolved nothing because it does kind of sound like then the celebrity is part of it the super celebrity is is the thing that we have decided really needs to exist within our ages of superhero media so and and where does that start? Because I mean, I postulated early on that it started with that it starts with West, but uh, maybe not because we really do care about. I mean, I don't know. We care because we're nerds. Do regular people care about George Reeves? George Reeves. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, no, I was thinking of oh god, who plays in the who's Superman in the Donner films? Christopher Reeves. Christopher, Never mind. Christopher Reeve. Yeah, Christopher Reeve in, yeah, in I, Donner films. But George Reeves, because George Reeves, you know, his being Superman sort of. You know, he starts the curse of Superman where people are like, oh, do you want to be Superman? Because it might kill you, you know? Well, I mean, it didn't work out so well for Christopher Reeves after a while either. But... Exactly. Exactly. That's what I mean. That was part yeah. of the cur that was part of the thing where people were like, because it does bleed into the real, I feel like the real world. Really... I mean, the fact that we've gotten through almost an entire episode without bringing up Linda Carter, the fact that Linda Carter will barely in passing, but yeah. like when we think about somebody who becomes mm -hmm. so intertwined with their like on-screen counterpart. Linda Carter is going to be playing some version mm -hmm. of Wonder Woman for her. Like Wonder Woman's Twitter persona, or, oh, or Linda so. Carter's Twitter persona is just Wonder Woman. Like, like Linda Carter is the person mm -hmm. that we think of as being truth and justice and all that is good in the world today because we keep casting her as, you know, Mrs. President within Supergirl because that's absolutely who Wonder Woman would be mm -hmm. we would elect her for president. Like, it's, there is 
our ages right. do seem to be our, our personas. And so if we are going to give some, some eras and some ages, like I do think that there is that seventies one and we should give it to Linda Carter and we should give it to Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And she's also, I mean, she is in the very, very horrible one, 1904. And she is the highlight of it as she is apparently some other previous Amazon who is walking the earth doing Wonder Woman things just quietly in the background, which is delightful. <laughs> Did you see? I don't know. Did either of you actually see Wonder Woman 84? Did. <laughs> it, it didn't do well. I saw it. So I don't know if any of you, oh, and, you don't remember that she's in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, it went straight to HBO Max. Yeah. yeah. 84 is a fine movie. It, no, it's like, not. I don't. <laughs> it's on. I hate it. I hate it's every second. It's the worst you, 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 Pascal, in a movie <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's just that's a different question. Maybe that might be another future. You know, let us know in the comments if you want us to do a is this a good movie or is this a bad movie on Wonder Woman 1984? Well, I don't know. Anybody- I don't know. Other ones were for fun because we uh, well, Mike might. <laughs> but here's the thing. We're, we're saying, is this a good movie or is this a great movie? Came across with our uploads of Jennifer's Body and Under the Cherry Moon. I think the argument is, is this a bad movie or is this a perfectly OK meh movie with Passable. Wonder Woman 4? Isn't necessarily. <laughs> OK, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Anyway, in the meantime, Mike, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> if people wanted to find more out about you and follow your work or anything, is there anything you want to plug? Actually, yeah, I kind of write every. I do run this web co-run this web comics column at multiversitycomic.com. And I write some TV reviews and movie reviews for them every now and again. We'll link that in the show notes. Yeah. And Monica Marvelous. Uh, you know, I don't want to plug Sweet Mav. Uh, I would like to encourage listeners to look up uh, strike funds. Uh, either for the WGA mm-hmm. or for the uh, grad student unions that are still on strike right now. Um, which there are quite a few, including my undergrad alma mater, C. Michigan, um, and donate to a strike fund. As, uh, it is a big risk to give up your paycheck in order to uh, hope for basic costs of living. And therefore, a lot of those people are going without and have been for a long time or might be going without for the foreseeable future. So uh, a cause, any cause, as long as it's a strike fund and donate to it. Absolutely. And as always, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. All the places always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we post about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. And you can leave us comments on this or any other show. You can suggest topics. You can suggest topics or say anything else. And sometimes we pick guests from the blogs and we might have you on the show. If you enjoyed the show and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify and do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. I've been meaning to on the show. When I get to this point in the show, I've been meaning for weeks to point out that we did have a five-star review that was written for us that I wanted to read just because it means a lot from Atomic G-Man that just says, a show that combines three of my favorite things, pop culture, drinking and swearing. Yes, please. This pseudo academic podcast is way too much fun for its own good. And anyone can find any something to connect with. Love it. Yeah. Write something Aww. like that. Hey, thank you. Atomic G man. That was awesome. That was really nice. But like, if you know, it really does make me feel all warm and fuzzy inside and Monica and Katya and Hannah and Wayne who aren't here. Like we like it. So please, do us a favor, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That gooses the algorithm and makes us more popular and lets us keep doing this. 
I would like to thank Maximilian of Botmore Music for our epic theme song filling ever so more epically and playing us out. Mike, once again, thank you for joining us. I'd like to thank you at home for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.